morning we take a break from our studies in the book of Genesis. And I want you to turn with me, therefore, to the book of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 11. And our text is going to be taken from verse 29. But I want to begin by reading verses 28 through 30. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Once again, let's pray for the help of God. Holy Father, even now we would seek your help and your grace as we would listen to these words pronounced long ago by our Savior. And we pray that we would listen to them as though we were there in person hearing them for the first time from our Savior in person. We pray that the Holy Spirit even now would make these words real to us and that he would take those things that are stated openly those things that are applied that they would be sent home to our hearts in such a way that we would love and serve and know our savior more and more we pray that you would help us as we just sang to go deeper and deeper into the heart of jesus we pray these things in the name of christ our savior amen it is likely that the passage that we just read has been a text of one or more sermons over the uh, various maybe 40-odd years that our church has been meeting together. But And it's also, no doubt, that it's been quoted many more times than it has been preached as a primary text. But it's not our purpose this morning to expound all those words that I just read in their entirety. Our purpose, rather, this morning is to highlight the words that occur in the middle of verse 29. Those words where Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's my intention to use these words as something of a springboard for a series of Lord's Supper meditations on the heart of the Lord Jesus. This idea has been prompted by a book that was given to me by my dear friend uh, Keith Maddy at the Pastors' Conference this past October. And this book is written by Dane Ortland entitled, Then Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. As I began to read this book on Sunday evenings, it occurred to me that its theme would be very appropriate and very profitable, I think, for our Lord's Table Meditations, when I'm the one that preaches right before we celebrate the Lord's Table. And we're going to be returning to our Genesis series as we preach on Sundays where we are not celebrating the Lord's Supper, but in the immediate future when I'm preaching a Lord's Supper sermon, I hope to preach a series of sermons with a general title, The Heart of Jesus. And it's likely that at various points I'm going to be indebted to Pastor Ortland and his book, and these sermons will not all focus entirely on the death of Christ, as oftentimes is more of a focus in our sermon right before the Lord's table. But Jesus said, as he gathered his disciples before 
he died for them, he said, this do in remembrance of me. And he didn't just limit, limit this remembrance by saying this do in remembrance of my death. He said this do in remembrance of me. And so we do this as we remember him. We are carrying out that command not only when we remember his death, but also his person. Now in the four gospel accounts that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters in all, there is only one place where Jesus tells us about his heart. And in the four Gospels, we learn a lot about his teaching. We read about his birth, his ministry, his prayers, his miracles. We read lengthy accounts of his interactions with the religious leaders of his day. We learn about the way he fulfills the Old Testament. And we read in great detail of his unjust arrest, the sham trials that took place, his shameful death, and his astonishing resurrection. But in only one place in all these 89 chapters do we hear Jesus speaking about his very heart. Here in Matthew 11, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Only in this one place does the Son of God, as it were, pull the veil back and let us peer down into the very core of who he is. And when he tells us about his inner being, he doesn't say, I am austere and demanding in heart. We're not told even that he is joyful and generous in heart. The one time he speaks to us about his heart, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, in certain places in the Old Testament that refer to our Savior, there are references to his heart in the Old Testament. We have, for instance, an expression of anguish, reproach has broken my heart. And that was said in anticipation of Jesus. And in Psalm 22, his, his expression of grief, my heart is like wax, it has melted within me, as it speaks about his sufferings on the cross. But in the Gospels, and even in the whole rest of the New Testament, there is only this one place that speaks of the heart of Jesus, and it is here in this verse, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now this statement, it occurs in the context of one of Christ's most tender invitations. He says in the pre preceding verse, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this sermon and this series, therefore, it's being preached for the sake of people that he is speaking to in those words. I'm preaching these sermons to people that are discouraged people that are frustrated, people that are disenchanted, people that are downcast. I'm preaching especially for those of you who ask, how, how could I mess up so badly so many times again and again? I'm preaching to those of you that have begun to wonder how God could keep putting up with you. I'm preaching for those of you that would, would want to know that, that God indeed does love you. You know in general that he loves us, but you, you, you know you've deeply disappointed him and you you therefore uh, draw back from him, perhaps in one way or another. Maybe there is even some believer here that wonders whether he or she has made shipwreck of the faith. Or you suppose that at the very best, God has put you on the shelf. But there might be somebody here, for instance, that is going through such a series of trials that it seems that they will never end. Jesus' last supper with his disciples was meant to be a time of comfort. 
He comforts them with spiritual truths that would be of help to them as, to, as he leaves them. And he especially is concerned to comfort them at that time that was so disconcerting and so fearful, those things that were about to envelop Jesus and his disciples before and during his death. And I could think of no statement in all the Bible that's so suited to give comfort than the words that I just read to you. The words, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And so I believe that this theme is entirely suitable as the basis of a Lord's Supper series of meditations that take us to the very heart of the one who suffered and died on our behalf. Now in this first sermon, it is my aim to do two things. I want first of all to show you how we have here a description of the heart of Jesus. And then we won't have as much time for our second point. We want to consider the exhortations that are connected to this description of the heart of Jesus. But first of all, we want to give a description of the heart of Jesus. And that description, of course, is found in these words, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, as we look at this description, we're going to do so from three vantage points. We want to look at its expression. How does he express this inner heart of his? We want to look at the opposites of that which he expresses. And we want to look at its manifestations. But I want you to first of all to notice how Jesus expresses it. We want to look at its expression. Jesus' description of his heart, it consists of two adjectives. Those adjectives are gentle and lowly. And both of these virtues, they are very modest in nature. And therefore, they are little esteemed among the people of this earth. But as the title of Alexander White's chapter on this text, as it describes these traits, these are, as White calls them, our Lord's favorite graces. First of all, this grace of being gentle. Now, the Greek word praus, which is translated gentle some, in some of your versions and the King James, it's translated meek. This word is only found in three other places in the New Testament, this adjective, in the adjective form. For instance, we have in the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, or blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. In the prophecy that's quoted from Zechariah in Matthew chapter 21, and verse 5, we read these words, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, or it could be translated gentle, and sitting on a donkey. And in both places, both in Zechariah, the place it's being quoted, and also in Matthew 21, this word is used to describe the Messiah as one who is a king that brings salvation without the use of force. He comes in a lowly way. Martin Luther, therefore, he called Jesus a beggar king. He has no means to enforce his rights, externally speaking. He doesn't come with an army. He doesn't come with swords. He doesn't come with a scepter in his hand. He ultimately comes to save people not by breaking them and smashing them down, but he comes by rather to suffer all kinds of injustices, even to the point of being put to death on a cross. He comes lowly or gently and sitting on a donkey. Peter's exhortation to wives to nurture more than anything else, they say this is what the wife needs to cultivate. The hidden person of the heart, 
with the incorruptible beauty, and here's the same word, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God, 1 Peter 3 and verse 4. So those are the three other places in the New Testament where this word occurs in its adjective form. Now outside the New Testament, in classical Greek, this is a very lovely word. Well, things that, uh, that it's describing, it oftentimes is translated, it has the meaning of, of gentle. It's used, for instance, of a gentle breeze in secular writings. It's used of a gentle voice, of a soothing medicine, or of the mild or the gentle behavior of, a, of an animal that's no longer wild, but it's been subdued, it's been trained. And of persons, for instance, in the classical literature, it means mild or gracious. It is a quality that's shown by friends. And it's the opposite of the stern harshness that might be expected from an enemy. And this word, however, it doesn't imply that the possessor of this trait is just a weak-kneed pushover. It doesn't mean that he's just somebody that just is just kind of like an old grandfatherly figure that would never threaten anybody by any kind of force or any kind of, uh, it's just, just a pushover. But it's not that. There is gentleness conveyed in this word prouse, but behind this gentleness is the strength of steel. Because the man who is prouse is a man who is under perfect control. It doesn't describe, you see, spineless gentleness or sentimental fondness, but rather it is strength under control. Numbers 12 and verse 3 tells us that Moses, and here it's using in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that Moses was the meekest or the gentlest man on earth. But that same Moses, he could act very, very, with great decision. He could even blaze with anger when the situation required for a, a, that kind of a response. So the person that possesses meekness or gentleness, he doesn't seek his own. And therefore he doesn't strike back when he's mistreated or abused. Now this word even though it's only found in three other times as an adjective in the New Testament, it's found 19 times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And frequently, it is used to translate, and most often it is, is used to translate a Hebrew word that means poor or humble or meek. The poor were people in the land of Israel that had no land property. They were the persons that didn't have lawyers to fight back when they would be abused. They often were there very defenseless. They were the oppressed. They were those that were cheated and exploited and cursed. These were the ones that are described as the gentle ones, as the poor ones, as the humble ones. And the noun form of this word is used nine times in the New Testament. The adjective we have here in our text, only three other times, but the noun nine times. And it's usually translated meekness or gentleness. In James chapter, or let me back up first of all, it's, it's one, of the, one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 23, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. In James 3.13, rather than using harsh words to get your way, James commends the meekness or the gentleness of wisdom. And using a synonym in that same chapter, and he, 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 as he goes on to speak there in James chapter 3, he contrasts this grace of gentleness with self-seeking 
and strife. And he adds in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and willing to yield. Now Jesus was the perfect embodiment of this grace. As Pastor Orton puts it, Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. So in Matthew 11 here, it's as if Jesus is saying to his disciples and to anybody else listening, come to me, all you sinners, all you offenders, all you who feel unworthy, all you that fear you have provoked my anger, come to me because I am gentle in heart. Now the other word that Jesus uses to describe his heart, we're still talking about how this is expressed, these two, these two graces together. The other word is the word lowly. Learn of me, he says, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. And the word translated lowly, it overlaps the word gentle. And often it's translated humble in the New Testament. In James 4, 6, we read, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But typically, in the, if you go back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then later on in the New Testament as well, this reflects a, a Hebrew heritage. Typically, the Greek word, it refers not to humility as a virtue, but to humility in the sense of being destitute, of being oppressed, of having been thrust down by the adverse circumstances of life. And the Greek word tapainos, which is the word translated lowly here, and the words that have the same root are found 270 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a very prominent word, therefore. And one time I remember reading somebody who was writing about the phrase about waiting on God, says when God repeats himself, we need to make we need to notice. And God's repeated himself 270 times about this, using this word in the Old Testament. And the most common Hebrew word that this word translates is the word ana, which means in its verb form to oppress or to afflict or to be or to humble somebody. Not so much about being humble, but about forcing humility, as it were, on somebody by overpowering them and oppressing them. In the verb form, that's, that's uh, the way that word is used. And 42 times it translates another Hebrew word that has a similar meaning, to become low or to be abased. The case of Hannah in the Old Testament illustrates the way the Greek term was used. Even though the wife of the other woman that was married to her husband, even though she... Uh, even, even though this woman, you see, was, was one who bore children, Hannah's womb, you see, was barren. And to make things worse, the other wife, they were both married to the same man, this woman, her name was Peninnah, she would use every opportunity available to aggravate Hannah's trial. And perhaps he, she did this, we don't know exactly how she provoked Hannah or Hannah, and she perhaps did this by implying that Hannah was so unfit to be a mother that God is judging her and not giving her a child. 
Especially this came up when they would go up to the feast and they would take their children at a certain age to participate in the feast. And so grieved in heart and grieved in spirit, she took her grievous trial to the Lord and she prayed, O Lord God of Sabaoth, if you will indeed look upon the humiliation, and there's the word, if you will look upon the humiliation of your handmaid and remember me and give to your handmaid a man-child, then I will indeed dedicate him to you till the day of his death, for Samuel 1.11. And when God then gave her a son, in her song of praise, she uses this same word all over again. She says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. She remembers how God brought her low. He, he humbled her in that sense. And later on, he elevated her. He lifted her up. And in both of these uses of the word, it's not Hannah's grace of humility that's in view, but it's the issue of her being brought low or forced into a lowly condition in life. And this is the most common way in which the word is used in the Old Testament. It's used to describe people that have been brought low, people that have been humbled by their circumstances, People, therefore, that are despised and mistreated by other people. For example, in Psalm 10 and verse 18, the psalmist says that the Lord does justice, and I quote, to the fatherless and the oppressed. And there's the word, the oppressed. That's the translation here of this word. It can be translated lowly, the fatherless and the lowly. In Psalm 28, 15, David prays, look on my affliction, and there's the word, affliction and pain. And in the next verse, we discover that this affliction, it came about through the cruel hatred of his enemies. So the word, it commonly depicts people that are oppressed, people that have been treated cruelly, people that have been reduced sometimes to utter degradation and contempt. Now Mary and Joseph in the New Testament, they were so poor that when Jesus was born, all they could afford was, uh, as they would bring him to the temple, all they could afford for an offering was a couple pigeons. And after she had conceived our Lord and Savior in her own womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, before Jesus was born, she rejoiced in God. And Mary sang what's called the Magnificat. And it starts with, I, my soul shall magnify the Lord. That's where that Latin word comes from. She's magnifying the Lord. And in this song, she says, He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. It's language so close to the way in which Hannah used that same word. He's exalted the lowly, or as some translated, those of humble estate, Luke 1.52. And Paul uses the same word when he tells us not to be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. Romans 12, 16. Now what is he referring to when he's talking about associating with the lowly? He's not talking so much about the grace of humility, although that should go with it. But he's referring, when he talks about, uh, he says to, to, be a, to associate with the lowly. Don't just ignore those people, in other words. He's referring to the socially unimpressive type of person. The person that is not invited to the great banquets of the celebrities and the rich. It's that kind of a person that would make the host cringe if he happens to show up unexpectedly at a, a special occasion. And not only those with Hebrew background, 
but also even the Greeks. They use this word in the same way. The Greeks, you remember, they were proud. They were philosophical. They were people that couldn't bear endure to endure insults patiently. And so they used this word to describe the disreputable. They used this word to describe the riffraff of society. It's the word to the Greeks that means keeping near the ground. It means vile. It means contemptible. That's the way they, they thought when they expressed this word. And this is one of the two words Jesus thought would describe his heart best. Isn't that amazing? He wasn't a lofty, ambitious, haughty person. He dwelt with the humble and contrite. He associates with people of low degree. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He took the lowly posture and form. There was nothing about his dress. There was nothing about his demeanor. There was nothing that would intimidate the poor and the miserable from coming to him. In his presence, all distinctions, you see, which men elevate themselves by, all these distinctions vanished. He was, as Luther puts it, the beggar king. He takes the place of a lowly, despised slave. Well, these are the two words he uses to describe his heart. I am gentle, I am lowly in heart. Well, now having looked at the expression of Jesus' description, I want you now to notice its opposites, just very briefly. First of all, it's opposed to a hair-trigger temper. The meek, the gentle, the lowly man, this person, this man or woman, bears provocations without striking back. For some people, you see that they explode with just a little spark. Now, somebody says that something that even hints with a little disrespect, in an instant, they're indignant. But Jesus bore all manner of blasphemy and disrespect without striking back. And even when he's being tormented by the cruelest death, even when the people that are gathered around him not only want to make it hurt the most they can, they scourge him, they nail him, they, they beat him, do everything that they can to make it absolutely horrible, even when that's not enough, and they gather around to mock him and to deride him and to hold him up with contempt, they vent their hateful hearts. Not once does he mutter a curse or threaten revenge. Never was there a more remarkable example of being slow to anger than that of our Lord. This lowliness, this gentleness, this is opposite of striking back. It's opposite of flying off the handle at the least little insult. And also, obviously, this lowliness is the opposite of haughtiness. Jesus never sought after the empty glories of honorary titles and lofty positions. He didn't have an office that had all kinds of big plaques of doctor of this and doctor of that degrees that he'd earned so that everybody knows that he's really an important person. He never spoke proudly to people that are around him. He never domineered over others. And the poor and the needy, they immediately felt comfortable in his presence. He's called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And of him it said, this man receives sinners. And he eats with them. Imagine, he eats with them even. He didn't flaunt his religious devotion either. He was the exact opposite of the Pharisees 
They were the very incarnation of pride. And by their dress, and by the places that they took in the synagogues, and by the street corners that they stood on as they would offer their long prayers, they set themselves up in these ways as being so godly and amazingly pious. That's the way they commended themselves. And they wouldn't come near sinners, you see, because they might be defiled, they thought. But Jesus is willing to associate with the vilest of the vile and the lowest of the low. I don't care what people say about me. He says, I'm going after those people. I'm going to be with those people. They're my people. And why? It's because he's lowly of heart. And these attributes, let me also add, were the opposite of fake gentleness and lowliness. Jesus was gentle and lowly in heart. These traits were qualities at the very center of his being. This wasn't just put on, you see. It wasn't that he pretended to be gentle and lowly and makes a show of it. He really was gentle and lowly in heart. Now it's true that he was, of lo- he was lowly in his appearance and demeanor. It's true. And even when he rode into Jerusalem as the rightful king of his people, He doesn't choose a king's stallion to ride upon. He chooses rather a humble donkey. But his lowliness wasn't just these external manifestations. It went deeper than this. It's It's the disposition of his heart. I am lowly in heart, he says. I remember one president years ago that at a funeral, the moment he realized that the camera had turned its focus and it was now zeroing in on him, immediately his light-hearted demeanor went quickly away. You could see it. It was all over the televisions. And he reaches up and wipes a fake tear out of his eye. He wanted, to look, he wanted to look really tender and so on. And so he has this little fake expression, you see, of, of tenderness. It was said of Thomas of Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1162 to 1170, and that in order to gain a reputation for humility... He washed the feet of 13 beggars every day, every morning. He probably wanted to be better than Jesus. Jesus only washed 12 disciples. He washed 13 beggars, and so he makes makes the extra one, you see. He wants everybody to know how humble he is. And yet he was the very arrogance itself, as people knew him. He's a proud man, exceedingly proud. You see, there wasn't any of this kind of fakery with Jesus. When necessary, he could be bold with hypocrites. But when he preached the gospel to sinners... He did this with a gentleness that was unmistakably genuine. His association with the poor and the sinful, this wasn't a pretended condescension. He was a real friend of sinners. This is his heart. This is really who Jesus is. Now with respect to the description that our text gives of the heart of Jesus, we're still underneath this first main point With respect to this description, we looked at its expression, we looked at its opposites, but now just consider with me its manifestation. How does this come out in his dealings with sinners, with his disciples, and with us? Well, in the first place, it manifests itself by a readiness to forgive. See, proud people don't forgive people easily. They take insults and they brood over them and They can't stand it. The people would mistreat them. But Jesus is ready to forgive. He says to sinners, come to me, 
all you who are heavy laden with sin. That's what he says right in this passage. And please don't imagine he's saying that you've sinned so many times you can't come near. Come to me, you sinners. And don't you see, I came all the way from the purity and the glory of heaven. I came so far to this earth. For what reason? To save sinners. Come to me. I'll forgive you. Come that I might bestow upon you in the name of my Father full and free forgiveness. Oh, please believe me, he says, when I tell you that I'm gentle in heart. I didn't come all this way just to condemn people. You were already condemned. I came to provide forgiveness. I came to provide grace for people that need it most. My heart is full of tenderness and compassion for you. I've borne a great deal from you already. But I'm ready to forgive even more. And knowing full well about all your sins, I entreat you, I plead with you, come to me. That's what he says. Even though I know all about your sins, I'll forgive them. And I won't remember them anymore. I won't be so grieved at your rebellions as to cast you out. Dear one, he says, says, I will never, never, never refuse you or cast you out. Come to me, he says. So it's the opposite, or so it's manifested, you see, in his readiness to forgive. But his heart is also manifested by a readiness to endure. There is in Christ's heart a willingness to endure even further offenses. And isn't this implied in that first adjective, gentle or meek? A perfectly gentle, meek heart is not provoked. It's not provoked even by repeated sins and insults. Jesus says to you and me, he says, I'm willing to bear with you as long as it takes. That's how willing I am. Even though you sin against me seven times, 70 times, I'll forgive you. I'll keep on doing it. I won't stop. And even though you abuse my kindness by sinning again, I'm going to endure it. I'm going to be gentle with you. And as often as you sin, as often as you come again, as often as you come and seek my forgiveness, as often as you ask me for grace not to sin again, I'm going to forgive you. I will endure this and I will again and again and again forgive you. And yes, there might be some times where for your good I withdraw my presence, that you might seek me more earnestly, but I'm never going to push you away. I am meek of heart. I am gentle of heart, ready to forgive and willing to bear with you now and all the way to the end. Why won't you come? So it's manifested by a readiness to endure. And then thirdly, his heart is all manifested thirdly by a readiness to receive. Now if it says anything at all, surely Christ's second word, lowly, It tells us that Jesus is ready to receive us. He says to every one of us, I am willing to receive the lowest and the poorest among you, the most obscure, the most despised, the most ignorant, the most rejected among men. I welcome with open arms. He says, don't imagine for a moment that I'll be embarrassed if you you come and you become one of my disciples. And they say, well, he, he hobnobs with kind of disreputable kind. I'm not going to be embarrassed at all. I want you to come. 
the lowest, the poorest among you, the most despised among you, come to me. Don't imagine for a moment that I'll be embarrassed over you. Don't imagine by, by th that, I, that I want to disassociate with people that are losers. I don't think that way. I didn't come in order to hobnob with celebrities and to hobnob with billionaires and the powerful. I didn't come to gather around me an aristocracy. The poor had the gospel preached to them, he says. This is a proof of who I am. I'm a friend of sinners. I'm a friend of outcasts, the rejects of this world. Do you remember how I lived when I was among you? I was born in a stable. I was raised in a carpenter's home, and I never had a home to call my own. All you of low estate, he says, come to me, because I have a lowly heart. And you who are the pariahs of the world, come to me. I was rejected too. I know what it's like. Come to me. And the whole point of Jesus' self-description as being lowly it's that he is accessible. He's approachable. And yes, it's true that our Savior is resplendent with glory. When he pulled back the veil of his humanity, you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, his face shone like the sun. But no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus. There's no hoops that he asks you to go through to get to him. You don't have to Sign up for a six, six months in advance to have a, a five-minute meeting with him. No one in humanity has ever been more approachable. All he asks is that you open up your heart to him. And who does he invite? He tells us who he invites. All you who labor and are heavy laden. Verse 28. He invites you to come, burden and all. He doesn't tell you that you first have to get rid of the burden. Then you can, then you can come. He says, you the burden, come. Come with your burden. I'll take that burden. I'll take the burden of your sin. Your burden is your first qualification to come. It's not the obstacle to your coming. He wants you to bring that burden to him. He says, bring that burden to me. I'll give you rest. And the rest that he offers, it's not some kind of rest that you have to earn, first of all, by years of arduous labor. So whatever your case whether you're seeking to earn God's favor by doing good works and your strenuous labors, or whether you're weighed down with burdens outside your control, you are among the oppressed of the earth, you have a heavy burden that's been forced upon you. Whatever your case, Jesus wants you to come just as you are, gentle and lowly. That's his description of his own heart. According to his own testimony, this is Jesus' very heart. Tender, opening, welcoming, understanding, accommodating, willing. This is the heart of Jesus. Well, thus far we've been looking at this description of the heart of Jesus under the two words that he has described himself by, gentle and lowly. And now having looked at this description, we want to now in the second place look at the exhortations that are connected with this description. And in the context of this description, there are three commands. Come to me, that's one command. Take my yoke upon you, that's another. And thirdly, learn of me, 
So Jesus' exhortations are very simple. They could be boiled down to three points. And this is what we need to do. Come to Jesus, submit to Jesus, and learn of Jesus. That's what he's saying for us to do. But we only have time to consider the first of those three. And it's the most important. It's what I wanted to especially preach to you this morning. I want you to just think with me before we close here of this first exhortation where he says, come to me. Now, some of the commands that are given in the Bible, they're very hard to preach. But this is a command that is pure pleasure for me to preach. Come to Jesus. I love to preach that. It was with, it's with great pleasure that I say to those of you that labor and are heavy laden, you are personally invited by Jesus to come to him. He invites you. He's not inviting just somebody else there you can think about that needs to come. He's inviting you. His invitation is exceedingly broad. Now, some people, they have limited invitations. There are some political fundraising dinners that it costs $50,000 a plate to go and have a dinner with this famous politician that might be president in the election or senator or whatever it might be. But Jesus' invitation is not to dinners like that. His invitation is not to the narrow kind of people that can just throw around $50,000 here and there. His invitation goes forth with these words. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now this doesn't mean that his invitation is completely without discrimination. The very fact that it's addressed to people that labor and are heavy laden, this assumes that it's addressed to people that know their need. They, they, they know of the burden. They know of their labors. And in the paragraph that precedes this invitation, we're given a picture of the manner in which Jesus handles the opposite kind of person, the impenitent kind of person, where he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So people that don't come tenderly asking for forgiveness and salvation, they don't come and find reception because they don't come to repent or, the, or to trust Jesus. But for the penitent, for the people that want his grace, his gentle and his lowly invitation is never outmatched by our failures. It's never outmatched by our sins. Now maybe there's somebody here you're worrying how can I be sure that he will receive me if I come to him? I've waited so long to come. I've stopped my ears so many times at so many sermons. My conscience has pricked me sometimes. And I've thought, I need to repent. I need to get saved. I need to get right with the Lord Jesus. And again and again, right after the sermon's over, I go out and I just kind of put my mind on other things. And it's gone. That's what I've done. So how can I expect he's going to receive me now? I've, I've turned them off so many times. Well, Jesus answers your fears with these words. I am gentle and lowly in heart. He says to you, first of all, come to me because I'm gentle in heart. If you come to me now before it's too late, he says, I'll never say to you, get out of here. No, he says, he assures you that if you come to him now, my friend, 
He will respond to you in gentleness. You see, gentleness, it's not just one of the ways that he might choose to respond to you. Gentleness is not just the way he occasionally responds to sinners. Gentleness, my friend, is who he is. He can't ungentle himself any more than you and I can change our sex or our race or the color of our eyes. Those kind of features, they make up who we are. Gentleness is who Jesus is. Now you say, but I've been really obstinate in rejecting Jesus. Sermons have made an impression on my heart, and I've shaken off those impressions again and again. I've been almost persuaded, but I've said, go away for now. When, a, when there's a more convenient time, I'll call for you. Or maybe I'm talking to somebody who wonders how you could ever be received by Jesus because you've actually spoken against him. You've actually sought to disprove his word. You've said nasty things about his people and about his church. And even to you, my friend, even though you've done all those things, Jesus says, come to me because I'm gentle in heart. Do you remember how Saul was on his way to Damascus? He's fuming with hatred against Christ. He's breathing out threats and slaughter against the people of Christ. But the gentle Jesus stops him along the way. And he asks him a very gentle question. Saul, why are you kicking against the goats? Why are you doing that? Don't you see you're not getting anywhere? Why are you doing that? This is how he speaks to him. And on that very day, Saul is brought to Jesus. And he's received with open arms. Jesus doesn't say, well, you've been really bad. Worse than almost anybody else I know on the face of this earth. You're going to have to take a while. You do penance for about 30 years. And then maybe I can think about taking you. No. He takes him right away. Or maybe I'm speaking to a believer. You've strayed far from the master. You remember what David said when David said, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so you ask, well, after returning to my sin so many times, like a dog returning to its vomit, how can I possibly expect that he's going to hear my prayers now? If I regard sin, my, he won't hear my prayers. Isn't that what the Bible says? Surely my prayers are a stench to him now. Well, my dear friend, listen to what Jesus says in this place. He says, come to me, for I am gentle in heart. You can be assured that if you come with true repentance and you come with true faith, I'm not going to slam the door shut on you. I'm going to receive you. Or maybe you say, my heart has become less and less sensitive over sin. I don't have the tenderness of conscience I once had. I deserve to smart under his rod. How can I just waltz right into his presence and just ask him to be received? And again, Jesus says, he will deal with you, not with harshness, but in gentleness. Gentleness is who he is. Do you believe it? Will you respond by coming to Jesus? Now, I would have all of you notice that Jesus anticipates another series of objections. These arise not so much from our sinfulness, but from our sense of insignificance. The issue of our sin he addresses by this description, gentle. 
but he also addresses the lowly, the downcast. And he anticipates our sense of insignificance. In anticipating these kinds of objections, he says, I am lowly in heart. You hear perhaps another person pray in prayer meeting, and you wish you could pray with that kind of eloquence. You wish you could remember Bible verses when you lead in prayer. Or you maybe hear other people discussing theology, and you wish you could follow what they're saying. You lament your halting speech. You, you lament your lack of eloquence. And let me ask you, where in the Bible, where in the Gospels, my friend, did Jesus say, well, you have to be very fluent and eloquent before I'll receive you? Where does he say, it's only the people that are not so stupid and ignorant. They're the ones that I take into my company. Where in the Gospels did Jesus reject anybody because he wasn't eloquent or because he was ignorant? You remember he had several women. This, I'm not saying this because women are ignorant. But I'm saying that the thing that was said about them is that when they went with the disciples, they cared for Jesus, the disciples. And no doubt they got some good theology lessons along the way. They weren't stupid women. But the thing that they did is they, they ministered with their hands to Jesus and the disciples. They cooked and the like. And we know this because the Bible tells us so. And if this meant nothing to Jesus, why would this be in the Bible? Why would he tell us that there were these women and this is what they did? And do you not think that these women learned a lot? Do you not think that they were received by Jesus? Is it only those with great talents that are used by God? We read in Acts 14, 13, that when the authorities perceived that Peter and John were, and here I quote, uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. I remember my dear friend Greg Nichols, he exulted in this. It was, I think, at the right time in which we, were, we became recognized. That's what they call people that graduated from the academy. And he says, that's just us, ignorant and untrained men. We're just the ignorant ones. And that's who God sends out into, into the world. Every three weeks or so, I get a phone call from a dear farmer in Nebraska. I've probably mentioned him in the past. And he's not, he doesn't have seminary training. He doesn't know Greek and Hebrew. He, he doesn't have all kinds of theological training. But he spends his spare time writing gospel tracts passing them out in the community, passing them out also to neighbors, not only that around where he lives, but also around where the church building is. And I'm not speaking with mock modesty. When I, when I think, and I've thought this hundreds of times, this man's going to be way closer to Jesus in heaven than me. He's going to be rewarded way more than me. And he's doing what he can. And Jesus loves that. He receives him. He's a lowly, humble man. And Jesus delights in receiving that which he does for his kingdom. So my dear friend, never imagine that you're destined to just remain at a distance from Jesus because of your lowly place in the church or your lowly place in society. Jesus loves the lowly. He himself was lowly in heart. And he's going to receive you and he's going to use you for his glory. Come to me, he says, because I am lowly in heart. Or could it be that I'm talking to a child today I'm talking about a little child. Maybe you're four or five years old. Maybe you're a little bit older than that. And you said, I have a hard time understanding some things, Pastor, that you say in the sermons. I have a hard time sitting that long and hearing because I can't understand it all. And well, I guess that must mean that I can't be a Christian yet because I don't understand it yet. 
And so you, you stay back from Jesus. And my young friend, I, w- I want to say to you, Jesus stooped down and put his arms around children. He said to the children, let the children come to me. And do not forbid them, he said to people that wanted to keep them away from Jesus. How do I know that Jesus will receive you? Because this is exactly what he did when he was here on earth. One of the great proofs of his lowliness is the way children, they ran into his arms, they sat on his knee. They, were, they, they knew that he was approachable, you see. And Jesus says, let them come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And when his disciples were acting like big shots, discouraging the mothers from bringing their, their children to Jesus, he says, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the children, to others that are lowly in one way or another, to those that are oppressed, to those that are poor, to those that are not the great honorable ones in the world, Jesus says to all of you, come to me because I am lowly in heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us this very incarnation of your own character and nature. We thank you that not only your son, the Lord Jesus, but even you stoop to draw near to those that are ignorant, those that are despised. And you delight to lift up those that are lowly, delight to exalt them. You are a God that saves those that are the poor and the needy of the earth. We cry out unto you. We bless you, Lord Jesus, that you are the gentle, lowly Jesus that we have just preached. And that you are the same yesterday today and forever. You will never be ungentled. You will never be unlowlied. We do thank you and bless you, Lord Jesus, that you are such a Savior as we have preached this morning. We pray that some in this room would come to you. We pray that our children would come to you, our young people would come, that those that are lost in their sins would come. We pray that even now as we come to your table, Lord Jesus, that we would not stay away. We would know that you welcome us. And even though we have sinned, as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Please do that, we do pray. Draw near to us even now, we pray, for we pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.